Hey, this is Rocco Guarino, and you are listening to Appetite for Distortion with Brando on iHeartRadio. This is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion. It is Brando, episode 137, and I appreciate every single one of you who follows along, whether it's on iHeartRadio, wherever you get your your podcasts, on on social media. And if you're following me today, and I know it's a podcast, I try to do this in real time, try to make it like uh, live radio. Uh, Today, back in 1988... Appetite for Destruction finally went number one after almost a year of uh, being on the charts. Where were you, Rocco? Where Do you remember where you were in 1988? In 1988, I um, was in Florida. I had just gotten out of rehab. I was in a rehab called Straight Incorporated for nine months. Mm. And, um, and I was driving my mom's red convertible Mustang GT around. Was a we had like white leather interior, and I hit the brakes, and a cassette tape came sliding from under the passenger seat, and I picked it up. I was like, "Guns and Roses, that sounds cool." So I popped it in. It was my mom's, and uh, and that was it. The rest is history. So that's how I discovered Guns and Roses from my mom. That's cool. <laughs> that was not a planned conversation. That was just kind of my. You know, shoehorning my way into the the natural flow of a conversation. And by the way, Rocco, I should have asked you this before uh, off the air. It's Guarino, by the uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Just, you never know. Uh, so Rocco Guarino is our our guest uh, today. Thank you so much for joining us. And that was not a planned conversation. <laughs> That's just beautiful. The organic uh, organicness of how you discovered GNR. Um, I, I guarantee you, nobody else. Uh, discovered the band, leaving rehab in your mom's, you know, finding a cassette in your mom's car. Fascinating. <laughs> so where are you, uh, you said you're, you, are you from Florida originally? Is that where you're? No, no, I'm from is? New York. Oh, oh, you know, I think we discussed this. Aren't you from, uh, you're from kind of like upstate? From, well, yeah, upstate. Yeah. I was born in Poughkeepsie and I grew up in, in the Hudson Valley there. It's about an hour, hour and a half north of the city. Jeez, uh, I, we had a whole conversation, you and I, uh, what was it, last week or a couple weeks ago, and, you know, I'm in the middle of moving, um, well, not just yet, I'm moving to Queens, I can say these names, because we have a global audience, but uh, moving to Queens in a month, so my brain is hectic. Yeah, we, just, we spoke about that, how I used to do uh, radio up in Poughkeepsie for... Uh, yeah, for one hundred one point five WPDH. One hundred one point five WPDH, man, that was my station growing up. <laughs> awesome. Crazy. So when you were growing up in Poughkeepsie, and one of the things that we talked about, there is a great—I don't know how it was uh, for you growing up, but now there's such a great rock scene. There really is. I'm very envious of it. You know, me being from Long Island and working in the city, I, I, there's something about that area that just loves uh, hard rock. Maybe like the Midwest yeah. does. Uh, so, what? Because there's so many different names I can attach to you for what you do. You know, I can say you're a composer. I can say you're a songwriter. So, 
when you were a kid, were you always kind of like a Swiss Army knife of music? What What did you like as a as a kid uh, growing up in the Hudson Valley? More like a guillotine. Uh, no, <laughs> um, no. I just I I I was into. I mean, my, the first music I ever really connected with was like what my bro, my older brother used to listen to, which was like you know Bob Seger and like Steve Miller and Queen and. Um, stuff like that. And then when I started getting into music myself, like heavy, like around 12, I guess, 12, 13, something like that, um, I was into early hip hop. So like Sugar Hill Gang. And I was, I was like a break, I was a break dancer, basically. I'll just say it. Okay. I was, okay. Uh, in a, I was a crew, I was in a crew, a break dance crew. And um, yeah. What and was they, your name called? What was, what was the name of the crew? I'm not gonna tell you <laughs> the rock and rock, but, uh, <laughs> the rock and Rockos or something. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to go to the Derby in Fishkill, New York, and it was a roller skating rink. And um, my dad would drive us all there. Me and all my friends, like in the back of the pickup truck, which was like super illegal and unsafe. But you know, those were the days. And uh, we would break dance on on roller skates. There's actually a YouTube clip of this that I could send you. It's pretty hilarious. Okay. Oh, like from eight, 1980, from 1984, on, that someone filmed on VHS. <laughs> oh, brilliant! That's classic. And I guess in my brain, and I know it, your name would not have been this, and you don't have to reveal, don't push it. But it just came to me. You can be Rocco's Modern Dance. No, <laughs> Rocco's Modern Dance. Yeah, that would have worked, but uh, I wasn't that clever at, at 13. Um, so yeah, so after my after my hip hop phase, then I went in, I went, I got into like you know hard rock, heavy metal. I was into like, you know, all the, all the, you know, Ronnie James Dio, Quiet Riot, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, all that stuff. Um, and that was like, that was the phase that pretty much lasted my whole life. It wasn't really a phase. That was when I, you know, for whatever reason, the people I was hanging out with, you got to remember, this is early eighties. I was born in 71. So it was like mid eighties when I was really just discovering music for the first time, you know? And so there was no internet, so it was just whatever. You usually just heard whatever your friends heard, you know? Sure. And so that's why I was, you know, I went I went from hip-hop to, to rock, you know, after I discovered it. And then I started playing the keyboards and shit like that. Okay, because uh, I was going to ask, you know, for me, I, you know, I was born, not to, to date anybody, uh, I was born in the early 80s, but I kind of came into my music uh, zone my music uh, appreciation in the early 90s and that's when I discovered GNR I, mean, I think my first love was I think my first cassette was getting Green Day's Dookie in my Hanukkah stocking which is such a weird <laughs> thing to say but that's that's my life uh, but I, I always I tried you know a guitar class in my middle school uh, it just you know, I would borrow my dad's acoustic, but nothing really stuck. I just didn't have it, so that's why I guess I went the the writing radio route. But for you, right. uh, did you have like a goal in mind? Did you just you mentioned the keyboards? Was that something you wanted to join a band? Did you want to make music? What did you feel like you wanted to be when you grew up? Essentially, I guess it started with the cars. Like the first album that I ever bought with my own money was I saved my allowance and I went down to. Hopewell Junction, which was a little village. Yeah. Uh, near, and uh, I went to the Hopewell Pharmacy and I bought the car's first album, the one with the woman with the long fingernails with the clear steering wheel. Mm. I think it's just a self titled Anyway, but yeah. So I was just super into that. And so then I got a keyboard. Um, I got a sampler and a Kai X7000 sampler. And then I got 
an Akai something something synthesizer, and then I got an Akai four track. And the four track was like what really started me off on my path to production, you know. So I guess pretty early on, I was into both, you know. Like I we had like a family organ, you know, like the okay. nothing cool, nothing cool like a Hammond or anything, just like a you know the cheese ball organ that you have, and then. Um, and then I got a guitar, so I was just playing around, you know, writing songs. Like I never was interested in really um, honing my craft or mastering one instrument. I didn't have the patience for that. Hmm. But I do. But I, for whatever reason, I did have the patience to write songs. So before I even knew how to play an instrument, I was already trying to write songs. You know. Well, that's cool. Like piano, piano and guitar. You know. How were your, your were your parents supportive of that? For me, I was very lucky. You know, uh, radio yeah. and journalism—they they are not easy careers, but they were very supportive of me. Uh, but at least there are yeah. kind of jobs you can get in a newspaper or a job you can get in a radio station. To make it in music is so difficult. Uh, so yeah, I guess how were you, how was your environment as far as uh, as far as supporting you know what you want to do your new you know your new love your new hobby. Yeah, my my folks were super supportive. You know, when I was a kid, they would buy me instruments. You know, <clears throat> and uh, but you know, and I, I don't know if I ever really. There was never really a day that came that I said I want to do music for a living. It was just more like it just was kind of always there. You know. Okay. It was just like from from, you know, and I was also obsessed with recording studios too. So <clears throat> it was kind of like an all around you know, obsession with like studios and music and production, you know, like the architecture of studios and, and the construction and the, uh, the design, you know, the interior design and that kind of thing. Just recording studios always fascinated me. So, yeah. I'm sure like, um, like I knew, even though I growing up on Long Island and especially close to New York city, there, there are big markets, you know, the Hudson Valley. Yeah. You're, uh, you're maybe like an hour uh, north of the city or two hours away because I used to have to drive from Long Island to uh, Poughkeepsie to that radio station uh, to do my on-air shift for, for minimum wage. But I knew I had to leave the big market when I first started to be to go smaller to build my resume. To uh, So I moved to Cape right. Cod, and, and that's why I, I know Poughkeepsie uh, to build my resume. So like now I am here in New York City. So I'm assuming you knew that you couldn't reach your goals in the Hudson Valley. So where did you, I guess, make yeah, your move so to start it, making it happen? Yeah, exactly. So, and so I was always in bands, you know, um, the first band I was in, I was like 14, I think. And we did like good times, bad times by Led Zeppelin and, you know, shit like that. I played guitar and sang badly. And, uh, hmm. and then I would later, I was in like metal bands and like in the mid eighties, late 80s I was in like metal bands I played keyboards and um yeah and then I, I ended up playing bass in a punk ska band called Lane that was really fun because uh, I didn't have to write any songs or anything I was just a bass player and then I had a band called Trouble Creek where we made a record up in Illinois it was all songs that I wrote and yeah so basically w the, the way that I left um New York was I, I was I played keyboards in a band called Unleashed and we bought a bus, like a school bus, and we painted it white. We pulled out the seats um, and put carpet down and put, like, 
couches in there and shit. And, and we got some stage curtains and we ran it the length of the bus all the way down and, and then like on the inside and then we cut slits for the so we could roll up, you know, the curtain for individual windows. And the back part was for the gear and the front part was our our bus, like our lounge, you know. And we go to shows. So we jumped in the bus and we went to Florida because my mom was there and she had a recording studio. Okay. In Hudson, Florida, um, which is by like Newport Richie, it's about an a half hour north of Tampa. Okay. So we went down there to make a record, and then the band broke up before we made the record. And, but I stayed in Florida for like 10, 12 years. Okay. So that's sort of where I really kind of came into my own as a songwriter. Was I was living in like this little podunk town called Brooksville, and I was living with this guy in a. This was after rehab, right? So I was like seventeen. And I moved to Brooksville, and I lived with this guy. I think his name was Blaine. And we were both in recovery, you know. We were clean and sober, and he lived in a trailer on a farm. And he had, they had, like, a barn, uh, you know, horses, cows, chickens, the whole deal. And mm-hmm. so we converted one of their, one of the things in the barn to, like, a jam room. And I had to four-track. And that's when I started writing, like, my first songs. And I would play, I would lay down, like, the vocal to the click or whatever, and then I would record the drums and the bass and the guitars and basically just play all the instruments and write the song and you know it was just super crude it was just four tracks but that's that's really that was when i kind of just learned just as a songwriter you know there's so much to that i can kind of tell that you haven't said yet but i i can feel it uh underlying and that's the the, the battle that you've had to to go through just to make it in your career i'm not even counting just the and I appreciate, because uh, that's something else we do talk about here, uh, is you know, rehab and um, addiction and, and mental health. So I, I'm glad yeah. that you say it so naturally, organically, because it is something that we need to talk about. Um, you know, of course, yeah. There, there are people, if you're, you're sick uh, with a cold or an infection, you go to a, a doctor. Your brain is yeah. also is something you need to go to a, a doctor for. So yeah. I know... In my journey, everybody should be in therapy. Oh, agreed. Everybody in general, you know, whatever kind of therapy works for you. But I feel like everybody needs something, you know. Agreed. Uh, I think we go we go a little crazy. I mean, we all have our friends that we talk to and stuff, but it's not the same. And that that was a battle I fought for the longest time. While I'm, for me, struggling to make it in my early, and this is the parallel I'm going to make with you. um, When am I going to make it in in radio or? my version to make it. I guess wanted a, a full-time radio job and it took me seven and a half years because I went the on-air route, which is just more difficult than, right. than board hopping yeah. or anything like that. But, you know, mixed in with just the highs and lows people may normally have with their careers, I didn't know my family history of depression at the time and it was yeah. a major struggle. So, I mean, I've been in therapy for uh, 10 years or so, so I can't even imagine, you know, you leaving your home and... and the band dynamics, I, I always say to, to people who tell me about their band history or even comics, uh, I don't envy that life It's because as hard as radio life is, those I feel are just more, those could be more difficult and, and lonely. So where did you, I can see in your personality why you connected with with someone like Scott Weiland. And before I, I guess we, we continue, and I said the same thing to, to Doug Rion when we had him on. I know it's been a few years, but I'm so sorry for the loss of your, of your friend. That you oh, know, that hit me uh, hard as a fan. I know, you know, I'm, I'm speak for millions of fans, but for someone who, 
you know, knew him as much as you did, but I'm seeing just from this, you know, the almost 20 minutes we've been talking, why there was a connection between you two. So I guess where did you, if I, unless you can tell me if I'm, if I'm missing part of your, your story, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but where did you, you, you two souls meet to, to sound a little cliche? Cause you seem like you kind of, your path, you seem to kind of, were destined to, to meet him. You know, was, was he the first big uh, songwriter that you met, you know, to kind of help you along with your career? Like who was your, when was your yeah. first big break? Yeah, so Doug Grion actually gave me my first big break. So I was in Florida, um, and I was doing a record. Um, I had a band called Harvest, and we did a record in 1998. And then we were doing another record, a second album in 2002. And I was the lead singer, and I wrote all the songs and produced the record and engineered it and mixed it and you know all that crap. So my drummer, we were mixing the record, and my drummer, his name was Sean Snyder, he worked at Sam Ash Music in uh, in Florida, and he got a gig. He got transferred to Sam Ash out here in Canoga Park, California. So he left midway through mixing the record. But we kept in touch for like four years. And I guess it was it was after 9-11, so it was 2002. Um, and I turned 30 or whatever it was, 31, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I just had like a, an early midlife crisis, I guess. I, <laughs> I decided that Florida was not cutting it for me musically you know there was no music scene the only music scene at the time was like you know we're talking about like the early aughts right like 2001 2002 tampa mm-hmm. bay it was all just like death metal you know mm-hmm. um or fucking you know top 40 cover bands so i was ready to get the hell out of there you know i had stars in my eyes i wanted to do the singer songwriter thing um so yeah i jumped in my car i had a studio i closed down the studio I broke up my band. I broke up with my girlfriend. I uh, I had a publishing company with my mom called Casanova Publishing, where we we published um, about seventy books over the course of ten or fifteen years. Wow, it was about twelve years. Yeah. Anyway, so we so we uh, so I, I I just basically just packed it all up and I packed my stuff into my car. I had an old Saturn called Abel Mabel. It was a white Saturn. And uh, that I bought from my girlfriend's parents, I think, at the time. Anyway, I had like 900 bucks, and I jumped in my car, and um, I went from I went to like different cities and did coffee house gigs because coffee, coffee houses were pretty popular then. Like John Mayer was just coming out, you know. Uh, okay. So I would just do acoustic versions of my records, and then I would sell some CDs, and I would have a tip jar, and I would that would get me to the next um, the next town or whatever, you know. Um, and then I just spent some time driving around the country, and I was on the road for like nine months. Um, I went to Atlanta, I went to New York, played some shows in Greenwich Village and um, and the uh, Midtown Chelsea. I think I did a couple little acoustic things. Anyway, yeah, that's where my family was. So, you know, and then I ended up in Wichita, where my my friend Panhead was, and I ended up there. He had a bunch of gear and he had a studio, but he didn't have an engineer or anybody. That, knew how to run it. So we put the studio together and I ended up staying in Wichita for like three months, just, um, you know, producing bands. I did a record for a band and I did one for their friends and their friends and so on. And then I was using a software program called Sony Vegas. And so I, it was crazy cause it was the early days of the DAW, you know, 2002, not early days, but you know, it was early for me anyway, <laughs> but I did a record in Vegas 
But then I also used Vegas to edit the music video because it was a program that did both. <laughs> so it was pretty, pretty wacky. And then, uh, yeah, and then I made my way out to L.A., you know. Um, uh, and that was like, I think I arrived in L.A. like um, September 31st or something, 2002. Hmm. I, left, I left Florida April, so I was on the road for six months, basically. Wow. I can't imagine I didn't the know, life experience. I didn't really and, yeah. know where I was going to end up. I knew I wanted to be in one of the music cities, you know, L.A., Nashville, or New York, or maybe Austin, you know. But I had I had never been to L.A., and I'd never been to Nashville. I don't think I'd even been to Austin at that at that point. So I was just kind of I just got in my car and just kind of drove around, just drove across the country by myself and wow. played coffee shops. And then when I landed in L.A., you know, again I didn't know if I was going to stay or leave, but um, I stayed. Like as soon as I got here, I was, I was hooked. You know. I admire the courage. I mean, did you ever at any point during those nine months and be like, "What am I doing?" Or you just knew, like, wherever you knew it was going to work no. out some way. Like wherever I'm going to no, end, I'm going to end up somewhere, and it's going to be okay. Yeah, I mean, I have family, so you know. I mean, I, I knew that I would never have to be homeless. You know, as right long as like parents and friends. You know, like. True. Um, but I, you know, I was dumb enough to think that everything was going to go my way so you know i was like i had like i wasn't worried at all really you know i was just i was actually the opposite i was super excited <clears throat> you know i was sad that my band broke up and that i left you know my folks behind you know but i was super excited about the future so um yeah that's what i did I, and when i yeah so then i ended up in la right on so yeah. How how long went after L, um, when you were in L.A. did you meet uh, Scott Weiland? Was he the first, I guess, big name, for lack of a better phrase of putting it, that you met? Uh, I'm wondering if you can just tell us about the first time that you met Scott. Yeah, so uh, so back to my drummer, Sean Snyder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we kept in touch for like, for I don't know how many years, right? And, and then... Um, when I came out to LA, when I was in Wichita, before I even got to LA, I was in Wichita for, I think, six months or something. And I kept in touch with him. So the day that I was leaving Wichita to go to come to LA, finally, he was leaving LA to move back to Florida. So we passed each other on like the 10 freeway at some point after keeping in touch all that time, you know, was having all these big plans to make music in LA. He, he, his job brought him back to Florida. So anyway, so I ended up, but he introduced me to his friend that was a drummer named Mike Gilphone, and Mike Gilphone played drums with a um, girl named Emma that Doug Grion was producing with Scott at Lavish Studios. Okay. And so, yeah. So one of my first gigs in L.A. was um, working for IATSE, which is like the labor union, um, and there was like a Harley Davidson 100th anniversary concert and STP played. And uh, basically, we're just like loading and unloading the STP trucks. That was like my first gig in LA. <laughs> okay. That's cool. <laughs> and of course, I didn't I didn't know anybody. It was just a local union guy. I wasn't in the union, but you know. It's, Rocco the roadie. It's okay. It's part of your journey. Exactly. Exactly. And then, uh, and then I got, and then I got a gig uh, at the LA County Fair um, running sound for or running running front of house on a, like a side stage a little mariachi stage for like a week hmm. 
and out in Pomona, and I was on my way back into town, and my car died. Old Abel Mabel shit the bed, and <laughs> the one the one person that my drummer Sean introduced me to over the phone um, was Mike Gilphone. So I called this literally the only person I knew in LA, and I called him. I was like, "Hey man, remember me? We talked on the phone once." Anyway, he came out. I had my car towed, and he came out and picked me up. And on the way back, he's like, hey, you want to stop by and see my friend Doug? He works with Scott Wilde at his studio. And I said, yeah, fuck yeah, of course. So we stopped by. He introduced me to Doug. Doug didn't have an assistant engineer at the time, and um, I was looking for some kind of gig. And so Doug took me under his wing. And, and uh, you know, I, I worked at Lavish Studios while Scott was on tour with SDP in, like, 2000. 2002 or three and you know just like took out the trash wrapped cables um swept the floors that kind of shit right on yeah yeah no i love it were you intimidated to like had you engineered at all at that by that time yeah i was an engineer i, I okay. started engineering when i was like 15 so oh, okay you point, are a pro at this point i was let's see it was like 2002 so I was, I was like 30. I was 31 when I moved, when I got, when I arrived in LA. I was 30 or 31. Right on. So yeah, so I'd already been engineering for like, you know, 13 years or something or whatever. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, and I was running sound, I was running front of house at the LA County Fair. It was a small stage, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, like a legit engineering gig. So anyway, so yeah, so I, I started helping out Doug around the studio. Um, oh man, there's so many funny little anecdotes i can tell you it's crazy. so i so i was introduced to um to, uh will my friend will and he was a manager oh wait no first i worked at guitar center oh i went to applied at guitar center on sunset boulevard and i got the gig and uh i met i got a call while we were closing like as we were closing that somebody was working on a movie set and the sound mixer went down so i went to the set with like a little maxi, little Mackie board, and uh, I walked in to the to the soundstage, and like it's like Bronson Studios or something, and it was just all porn stars and strippers, and I didn't know what was going on. It was, <laughs> turned out to be the to be the set of a movie called The Girl Next Door. Oh, okay, yeah, I remember that movie with uh, yeah, Emil Hirsch. Is that the kid's name? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, it was like a porn convention um, scene that they turned an entire like massive soundstage into a porn convention. Nice. It's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, so, so then I just hit it off with that guy, um, uh, David Sutmurther. He was the production sound mixer, and um, so I decided, okay, maybe I'll have a career as like a boom operator or a production sound mixer for feature films. So he he uh, kind of took me under his wing, and he he taught me the ropes, and I I spent like a month month and a half on a set of Girl Next Door. Um, I wasn't allowed to work because I wasn't on the gig, but you know he let me loiter and taught me stuff basically. And then we did <laughs> all good. A couple other ones. We did like uh, Charlie's Angels too. I was actually I was actually in that. I did a lot. I did a lot of background extra work too when I first moved to LA. I was oh. in like um, I was in Kingpin. There's like a close up of me like smoking a bong, and I was totally clean and sober at the time. It was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> It was that Kingpin was like Aaron Spelling's answer to the Sopranos for NBC, right? So and um, so there was that, and then there was I played a dead Armenian. Oh, um, I was thinking the movie with Bill Murray. No, no, this was a TV show. Got it. Okay. 
Kingpin. And then I did, uh, I was on Entourage, like just walk, walking by, just walked by in the background. Um, Great experiences. <laughs> Great experiences. I have friends who were extras. Yeah, man. I would go and I would hang out in a movie set all day in, in the air conditioning. And because uh, I didn't have air in my shitty apartment and fucking, I was in Tustin. Um, and they're meeting people. Yeah, I was hanging out with people. I'd bring my acoustic guitar, you know, and we'd get free food. And you'd, you'd get to be on TV and you get paid. <laughs> right. I was like, whatever. I don't have anything that day anyway. Um, yeah, so then I applied. I applied for the DGA to get into the Directors Guild to be an assistant director and, you know, take that production path. But the DGA program was, like, impossible to get into. So, And then um, and then David, I think his name was Kelp. Kelton or something, the production sound mixer. After we wrapped The Girl Next Door, then um, he went off to do 50 First Dates with Drew Barrymore in Hawaii or 50 First Kisses or whatever it was called. 50 First Dates, yeah. Um, no, I remember. <laughs> yeah, 50 First Kisses is what was on the call sheets every day because that was the working title, but then they changed it before they released it. But oh. yeah, so they, um, so by the time he got back, I was already working um, with Doug at that point. So, um, yeah, so so that was my like brief foray into uh, production sound mixing, and um, so then I uh, I got a call from from uh, I think it was from Doug, and he asked me if I would run sound for um, for Emma for the rehearsal. So and the, my manager at Guitar Center wouldn't let me leave, so I just went to lunch and never went back. <laughs> <laughs> just I just bailed, um, and then. Uh, and then that that gig ended, and then uh, and then I got and then I met my friend Will, and he was a manager of Manny's Music, which was across from Guitar Center. And Manny's ended up being a Sam Ash later, and I ended up moving in with Will um, in Woodland Hills, uh, and we were roommates. And I worked in the guitar center in the guitar department there at Manny's, and that's where my friend, me and my friend Jeremy Brown met. And uh, Jeremy was I ended up getting him. I introduced him to Scott and he was Scott's guitar player and he passed away too. But, um, so me and Jeremy would just, uh, there was like a TV cart for training, like the new people and we would steal it and bring it down to the guitar department. And, and we would bring in like Cousin Rose's DVDs and Led Zeppelin DVDs and just watch that shit all day because there was no customers. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, and at the meantime, I was doing that during the day with Jeremy and then at night, um, I'd be at lavish just helping out you know, um, wrapping cables, like I said, just doing whatever, you know. Um, and then uh, Scott got home from his last tour with SDP, and um, he kind of needed, like, an assistant or someone to kind of help out a little bit, you know. So I will drive him around or whatever and hang out with him. You know, I was clean and sober at the time. So I was trying to be a good influence and whatever. I wasn't like a sober coach or anything officially, but I was just like, you know, I just started helping him out, you know, but, you know, he was, I know what the day, I remember the moment I met him, I was at Lavish already hanging out with Doug and he walked in and I was like, I, for some weird reason, I just felt like confident and I made like a kind of a joke, kind of loud, you know, I was like, just made like some kind of funny joke and it was pretty funny, but Scott laughed too, but then he was like, so who are you, man? What's up? What's your deal? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck, I'm gone and he's going to kick me out. Um, and Doug was like, no, he's cool, man. He's been helping me out, you know, around the studio and stuff. So Scott was like, all right, cool. And then that was it. From then on, we were just fast friends. And um, and I would just drive him around and whatever. So 
Yeah, and then one day I, I was at the studio and um, someone called. I don't know if it was management or whatever, but um, Scott hung up the phone and said, um, Slash and Duff and Matt Storm are going to come over. The guys from Guns N' Roses are going to come over to the studio tomorrow because they're, they might, we might do like a project or something, you know, just see, maybe we'll just do a song for a soundtrack. We'll just see what happens. And I was like, all right, cool. So um, they came over and it was like, it was fucking awesome. You know, it was just, it just instantly clicked. It was amazing. So uh, um, we did a song for um, the Italian job, I think was the first one. Yeah. Money was the cover of money. Yeah. I don't know if that was first, maybe set me free was first. But yeah, they just basically, they came over and they played a bunch of stuff in the control room that they had recorded. Adam Day Slash's guitar tech used to record everything on CD, all the rehearsals and songwriting sessions and shit, jam sessions. So he had all that stuff cataloged and then he put, he, he gave it to Doug and he put it in Pro Tools and he'd chop it up and make songs out of it. And then eventually they brought all their gear over, which was fucking insane. It took up the entire studio. That it wouldn't even fit on the stage. They played on the floor. It was, you know, Slash's massive stacks, Duff's massive stacks. Matt Storm's huge drum kit. It was so fucking loud. And uh, and I ran sound for it for the, you know, the I ran the monitors, you know, so they could hear Scott's vocals and stuff and put the guitars through there and stuff. So I was up on the stage running monitors and I just, I remember one day Slash looked up and was like, hey, Rocco, can you give me more vocal in the, in the wedge? And I like, I did it. And then like, he's like, cool, man, give me a thumbs up. And he turned around and he just like played it fucking big chord. And I like, goosebumps on my spine. I was like, holy shit, I've made it. <laughs> it was like the moment when I was like, oh my God, I'm fucking, what am I doing? Why am I here? That's cool. That's, that's special. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Do you remember yeah. the, uh, the first song they may have practiced together? Well, they worked on stuff on the computer before they ever played live. Like I said, okay. they, had, they had all these songs recorded and they brought them all in the Pro Tools and we would chop them up and, and make the early VR songs out of them, you know? And then they would, we'd chop them up in Pro Tools Scott would sing over it and then Doug would bounce it out and give it to the guys and then they would learn it. They would learn the new arrangement and they would do it live. And then Adam would record it live to CD or sometimes we'd record it in the control room at Lavish. Um, and then when, yeah, and then so we had like, I don't know how many songs we had and then we started shopping for a deal and that's when it all started, you know? Wow. Uh, before we even get to the whole VR ride, I'm just curious as your role as you know, an assistant, which can mean, you know, a variety of things. It's whatever he needs. But you're obviously his friend as well. So you you started when STP was still around, right? When that was still... Yeah, t- 2003 I met Scott. So, yeah, he was, at, he was on tour. He came back. Um, I can't remember which tour it was, actually. But when 2003, the tour ended. He came home, and that's when we met. I was remember, already at, I was already working with Doug at Lavish when Scott was gone on tour when I started working there. Do you well, what were your thoughts of you know you've become friends with this you know from my generation one of the best frontmen and songwriters. Uh, you're you don't seem the kind of person to be like hey you should do this you should do that you know kind of let him do his thing. Was there anything that maybe you wanted to see him do to, to try it with STP again? Were you blown away with the Velvet Revolver opportunity and be like, let's see where this goes. And of course, Scott, with the many solo albums, did you have any, I guess, input as an assistant? Was that part of your, your role or was it just to, you know, kind of just be there and 
uh, you know, like you said, drive. Yeah, I actually, see, I actually secretly wrote all the Velvet Revolver lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, man, he didn't need any help, man. He he was a fucking badass. Well, I'm just curious of like what you like. I don't know. As as a fan, as a music fan you're, yourself, yes, you're there and you're helping. You're you're part of the team. But was there a certain journey that you want you, or did you want to see all of it happen? Were you sad, like maybe when SDP yeah, I mean, broke I, up? I was just overwhelmed. I was like swept up in the in the fucking hurricane that was called the project at the time. It didn't even have a name, but it was with those guys, with the GNR guys and Scott singing. It was fucking fire, and I was super stoked. You know, it was literally just the band and me and and the techs. You know, it was that was it. You know, um, witnessing this shit being written and and born and it was so fucking loud and powerful and it was like I just felt like rock was losing its its balls and um and VR came at a good time, you know? Yeah. To come back. No, absolutely. Bring it back a little bit, you know? Yeah, I was just excited to have a fucking I was just as excited as a fan, like to to be like, oh cool, I can have another rock album I can go buy except maybe I won't have to go buy it. Maybe they'll give me one. But that was, yeah, that was that was where my head was at. And then I was, of course, thinking about my own career in terms of, like, you know, once this all settles down or whatever at some point, maybe I'll, you know, play a song for Scott or something. But uh, I never really had the, the nerve. I mean, my whole life was, I've like, I don't know, I guess the thing that I probably identify as the most is a songwriter and producer. So, but for some reason, I just didn't, I had so much respect for Scott. Like, like I said, when I came out, LA I was trying to be an artist you know and then but I never was a good enough singer but I didn't care I was like fuck it, I'm gonna do it anyway um because I had I felt like I had the songs you know um but then I went I spent some time in, in the studio with Scott um doing set me free uh like within 20 minutes I was like there's no way I'm doing this for a living this, <laughs> this guy's a fucking monster I mean he would build these chords you know um these chord voicings with his vocals you know overdub 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 just layers you know but he wouldn't know what what any of it was theory wise but he he knew it by the sound of it you know and all the different characters that he played with his different voices for different songs and and stuff like that and i was just like you know this is a whole nother level there's no way i I can do this so i said i told myself i'm just gonna be a songwriter and producer and stay on this side of the glass because well, yeah. um, then, then I also I saw the process kind of in the making and I realized like you know what what if I put my ego aside and I can take my songs and have an amazing singer sing my songs then my songs would be the whole a whole other fucking level you know um, so that's what I did I started working with singers you know and that kind of launched my that took kind of my, my um, writing to like the next level once I started working with different other singers you know okay uh, who else did you? Yeah. Was that during the VR time that you were working with other singers, or you were completely devoted while that was going on to VR? You had no time for anything else. Um, I I didn't really have time for. I was still writing like at night, you know, my acoustic guitar, but I, I didn't have time to like record or do much. I mean, um, Doug gave me the keys to Lavish pretty pretty quick, and I would go in there off hours and just record demos and shit. But um, I didn't really have time to do like a full production on anything because. I, I pretty quickly became Scott's personal assistant, and it was a 24-7, 365 gig. There was no days off. There was no hours of operation. There was I was always open, you know. So, um, you know, whatever he needed at any time of the day or night, you know, I had to jump. That was, that was the gig, you know. But, 
was the biggest rock star in the world at the time. And, yeah. Um, I was fresh off the boat, so I did it. You know, I sucked it up. I didn't want to be a personal assistant. I had never any, any interest in I, I was the guy. It was hard for me. You know, I was the guy that needed a personal assistant. I was a fucking mm. idiot losing his keys and <laughs> couldn't tie my shoes. And I could write a song, but I couldn't, you know. And so for mm. me to, like, try to organize someone else's life in this whirlwind of this huge rock band um, was kind of hilarious and stupid. But, you know, <laughs> we figured it out. We, we figured it out. Yeah, and made it he had never had an assistant before. And I had never been an assistant before. So wow. We both fucked up a lot. We both apologized a lot. That's beautiful. I think that in, in the end, I guess, look at that as uh, two friends kind of helping each other out. So when did you transition? Because you still were able to display how talented you are with being with photography, with filmmaking, with Velvet Revolver. So when did the transition go to, you know, hey, this is our friend Rocco. This is Scott's assistant Rocco to... Uh, let's make a video. Let's make some documentaries. You, you know, you're you're responsible for some, you know, great for documenting some great stuff in uh, Velvet Revolver yeah. history. So, how did that transition come about? So, I just I just had like a Canon Sure Shot or something, like a point and shoot, you know, some bullshit camera, and like no one was taking pictures or documenting any of this, and I just felt like it was worthy. So. I started taking pictures with the little point and shoot camera and and whatever and then showing them to the guys and they, they liked them. So like the first thing that I ever like had in the world of of my like anything that I had done was the tour program for the contraband tour. Okay. They um yeah. They used the the centerfold was all backstage behind the scenes off stage stuff that, that I took. They were all photos that I took. So um, yeah, they asked me if I would, if I had any good photos. So I sent them a CD with all the photos to you know uh, to look through, and and next thing I know, they sent me the program, and it was all my my photos in the centerfold. So that was that was exciting. That was like super cool, and that's when I really because I always had an interest in the visual arts, but I was just always so obsessed with writing songs and, and producing that I never really you know pursued it. So because I didn't have time to like write and produce music cause I was working for Scott, but I did have time to um, like just take pictures cause I could do that while I'm working, you know, basically. Sure. So that's what I did. I was like, all right, I'll just pursue this video thing because Scott seems to like it. And you know, they use some stuff, so maybe I'll do video. So then, so then, um, yeah, that was the, so, so for the contraband record, I was his personal assistant and I ended up, and then when then we you know we did the record at NRG and Josh Abraham we did the vocals at Lavish and and then I kind of figured I didn't know what the future held I just figured once I go on tour that's it I'm out of a gig my job's done maybe I'll see him when he gets back or something um, and then that moment came that really changed my life that I was praying for that he pulled me aside and was like hey man um, when we go on tour uh, I want you to be like if you want like come on the road with me and like be my assistant on tour and I was like fuck yeah <laughs> so that was that was uh that was life changing that was that was awesome uh, I can't even imagine how did yeah. you know, again with you taking pictures you know and you th- thankfully you had a you know a quality camera and you know, your work was noticed how did that go to being a, a director and, and most notably oh, it, it premiered right. 12 years ago this month if you can believe it, the last fight, which was of course off the second. Oh, record. really? Yeah. Twelve years ago this month. August twentieth, uh, two thousand seven. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Isn't it? Yeah. Time flies. <laughs> I think it hit like number nine. I just remember it hit number nine on the VH1 Top 20 Countdown, and I I remember calling my mom and told her I have I directed a top 10 music video. Oh, that's so, awesome. So. That's so cool. That's a great moment. Well, she was there. I mean, she was there. She flew out when we shot the video. I'll get to that later. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just from like taking pictures and stuff, and then um, I was the personal assistant for the Contraband Tour, and then after that tour... Um, Actually, before the contraband tour was even over, um, I quit. Like, I quit a couple times. Really? Um, yeah, because just, you know, um, you know, he was going through a rough time, you know. So, you know, when 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 we're going through rough times, we're not always the person we want to be okay. to our friends, you know. And um, sometimes the people we love the most get hurt the most. And, you know, I was just one of the casualties of the of the. The war on drugs. Understood. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, mm. his, his, you know, I was one of the casualties of, of his war on his drugs, and, but it was fine. You know, we were still friends. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. It was just too, just too hectic. I won't go into details, but um, understood. I just couldn't do it. So, so I quit, and you know, Scott was amazing. He, he, he would. He, it's funny because he would he would get super bent out of shape about little things. Like if I forgot something or screwed something up, but when I had to tell him something really big, he was like totally cool about it. <laughs> like while well, I was dreading telling him that, Hey man, um, like I'm going to quit. I don't want to work for you anymore. And this is literally in the middle of the world tour for contraband. Like it's the height of the, of the everything. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bail, man. I'm going to go make a record. I have all because I had all these songs and, you know, all this traveling. I mean, look, I didn't even have a passport before I met Scott, you know? Huh. So like, and, and then I'm traveling the world and it's just like, it's, oh man, I can't even begin to try to describe to you the intense emotional uh, roller coaster that it was. It was it was beyond anything I could even imagine. Like the, some of the worst times of my life, some of the, obviously the absolute best times of my life, mm-hmm. but the stress and the pressure and um, the timelines and the travel and the, it just everything. I was just, I was like, you know, I, I'm done, you know? And, but all of that stuff, you know, it inspired me to write. So I was writing more than ever in my hotel rooms at night on tour, like on my acoustic guitar. Um, and so I had like a batch of songs and then we um, we were, we went through a Wichita on tour and I met a singer named Jen and we, we decided to like do a project. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I quit, you know, and, and Scott was cool about it. He's like, obviously I'm, I'm a songwriter too. I know what it's like to have songs in your, in your, um, you know, in your brain that you want to try to get out. And, um, so he respected my decision and he supported me 100% and told me, let me know when the record's done and he'll pass along and all that stuff. So it was, uh, it was cool. So I, I gave the gig to my friend, uh, Panhead, and he was, he became Scott's personal assistant for a while. Um, and then, um, and then that, and then that was it. And then the, the, the contraband tour ended and they took a break and they started writing for Libertad. And then I got a call from Duff. Um, just compl- I was, I remember, I remember, putting an ad on Craigslist, like, because uh, I was filming, I was filming everything on the contraband tour. Um, just like, you know, filming and photographing just with my own crappy equipment. Mm-hmm. And then I was, so after I quit, 
I locked out a studio in a basement in Wichita, Kansas for a month. I just paid for it. And I want to re- make this record of my songs, my third solo record. And, uh, and I couldn't do it, man. I just couldn't, like, I couldn't focus. And, you know, it wasn't, I was clean and sober, but it was just like, I just couldn't focus. It was, the whirlwind was so intense that I needed like a couple months to really decompress, you know, hmm. uh, and to relax and to just focus and get my thoughts together. Cause it was just so, I mean, I literally had PTSD. My phone would ring and I would fucking, my heart would pound and I would jump, you know, because it was like, okay, what, what, does Scott what, need? what did he need or what went wrong or what's the drama or hmm. you know, what's, um, someone at the label screaming at me or, or somebody, you know, yeah, it's it, a was lot. Constant. I, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. So anyway, the point is I wasted a month in the studio, um, and, uh, went back to LA and then the singer that I was working with and ended up moving to LA and we ended up, uh, doing four songs at Matt Storm's Matt Storm let me use the studio. He, he went to rehab at some point, uh, in between the two VR records and I, like I would house it for him. Sometimes I would house it for, for Dave and, um, when those guys would go away. And so I, I housed that for Matt for a little bit and fed his koi fish and used the studio and made, made a demo. And my buddy, Mike Fasano, drum tech, killer drummer, he played drums on it. And then Matt, Matt played drums in two songs and, and Mike played drums in two songs. And my friend Kevin Smith engineered it and I wrote it, produced it, Kevin mixed it. And I, I finally got like four songs that, were representative and it wasn't until then that I in my life when I was like it was after contraband I finally had I was probably 34 or something that I finally had songs that I felt were like you know that were worthy you know to pass Mm -hmm. along to like industry industry folk so I was a late bloomer for sure I mean it was an early I was an early bloomer in getting into it I was a late bloomer and finally getting to where I thought I was Happy, I, you know? I hear you. Yeah, no, I I identify a, a lot with that. So, I guess was it whose idea was it for you to I guess make the the video now that you're back in with them? Like, was there? Oh, any... so yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so I did the so I did the uh, project was called Two Bit Floozy. It was me and uh, I played everything with the drums and uh, I had a singer named Jen. Uh, yeah, so. So then I was, uh, yeah, I was like putting out on Craigslist, like videographer available, whatever. And then I got a call from Duff out of the blue saying, and he was like, hey, man, I heard you're going to come and you're going to come back and work for us and, and film everything. And I was like, I, I, at that time, I hadn't heard. I guess management was supposed to call me first, but they didn't. Um, so uh, that's how I found out. And he uh, he basically offered me the gig and told me. And so I went down to SIR rehearsals and everybody was like hey Rocco they were like super happy to see me and I was super happy to see them and I had the camera on my shoulder and um and then so I put together like a plan for um like for so it was like MySpace and I think that was pretty much it it was like Friendster it was like Friendster and then Napster and then MySpace <laughs> and then and I handled the I handled the MySpace for the band remember we had like the top eight yeah yeah when you had to, <laughs> you had to rank your friends <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so of course I put myself in the top eight on the revolver MySpace <laughs> next thing you know, okay next thing you know I'm like internet famous um and like I'd be setting up uh like all this crap on the drum riser at, at the shows, like 
uh, on tour and people in the crowd would like yell my name. They would recognize me. That's so funny. Face. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, uh, I put together the thing. I called it, the, I called it uh, something stupid like Vripe or something. Velvet Revolver Internet Presence Empire. And it was just a plan of what I'm going to do, right? Because they didn't really know enough about any of this uh, quote-unquote internet stuff at the time. So they, they were kind of counting on me. I think the the my official title that um, I think Duff made up was Technology Liaison. <laughs> and so <laughs> in the tour books uh, that they would give to the band and crew and the wives and everything before you leave on tour, um, my title was Technology Liaison. It was pretty funny. <laughs> Everybody asked me. But none of the local crew knew what the hell I did. They were like, what do you do, man? I'm like, oh, I just, I just like fix their Blackberries and their laptops. Cause what is it was... you do here? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Um, so I presented them. I had them, I, I sat them all down. I was like, all right, guys, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be your videographer. I'm going to be your photographer. I'm going to post every other week. I'm going to do um, a, like a text post. And then like once a month, I'll do a video post. And I laid out like how much it would cost if they hired all separate people to do it and how much they would save. They just had me do everything. Nice. And, and then I told them how much I wanted. And then I waited a few days and I got the call from management saying that I got the gig. Beautiful. Beautiful. And then, uh, yeah, that's how it, so that's, that's how that, that's how it started. And so then he had an assistant that was like, you know, taking care of him. So I was just strictly focusing on for the whole Libertad, the writing and the recording and the touring. I was just strictly the documentarian, just filming and photographing everything. I'm sure that was actually uh, a lot less stress on you. Or or perhaps were amazing. you worrying more since you knew him so well? And maybe that you thought that you, yeah, where were you when you weren't going to be his assistant, but you were still involved? I guess, how did you approach that? Where you're like, okay, great, this is, I'm doing what I actually want to do. Or... Since he's your friend and you know he's struggling, did you wanted to be close to him again? Was there any sort of uh, inner turmoil uh, there? No, I mean I, I was still close to him. We still worked together every day, but instead of fetching his coffee, I was just pointing a camera at him. Nice. <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah. But, okay. Um, I know I'm not going to keep you. I, I appreciate the time you've you've given me. Uh, did you write the the script like everything, or did you just direct the the video for? Uh, the last fight did you because yeah, there's so many so great pictures online of you directing slash or, dire- or you know you can see you and, and Scott at a table and he's taking notes while you're talking to him so just real beautiful photos of you guys filming yeah. and behind the scenes that was either, I think that was either Gene, either Gene Kirkland or John Harrell one of those both guys both of those guys were there that day taking photos so those were one of their photos um, both great guys good friends of mine um so after the so basically after the after the uh, photo after the like the the layout tour program photos, and then they hired me on to do to do just you know filming and photographing for Libertad. Um, I started doing like they were for a minute they were called before they were webisodes. There was like a year that people were calling them vlogs, like video blogs. Yeah. So I put out like four. I put out like four vlogs. <laughs> Stupid word. I don't even want to say. It. <laughs> uh, no dumber than you know, selfie. For, you know. I put out four short promo videos pieces, and uh, and um, they really loved them. Like there was no notes for any of them, no cool. changes. Like they just went with my cut, and that was it. So they were like, so they asked me to do like a behind the scenes. So then um, we were working at Henson Studios for for Libertad, and I filmed everything. Brendan O'Brien, and of course, I was into it um, as a filmmaker, but I was also into it as uh, 
producer, record producer, because I'm filming everything that Brendan O'Brien does and stealing all his tips and tricks, you know? So that was cool. Um, and, uh, and then I put together like a little 10 minute piece called, uh, well, it was just about the making of the record. I don't know what they called it. They made up a name for it. I think it was like, um, I think they put it out in the UK with some covers, we did, they did like a UK EP of covers, and then plus it was, this was at when enhanced CDs were super popular at the time. They were like the latest thing. Mm. So you'd buy a CD, CD, and you'd also get like a DVD with it, or like the CD, and you could put it in your computer, and it would play videos and shit. Yes. So um, Yeah, I had that okay. for Velvet. Yeah. So it was called it was called Melody and the Tyranny, I think was the EP. And it was like Psycho Killer and um, Can't Get You Out of My Head and whatever other covers we did during the Libertad sessions and we, they put, they threw those on a, on a, on a product with one of my videos and called it uh, Melody and the Tyranny. So that was cool. That was like a 10 minute thing and they loved that. And then they asked me to do like a 30 minute thing. So, you know, the projects kept getting bigger and bigger. So so I took all the footage um, that I had shot on tour. Uh, We did, we did a South American tour with Aerosmith and it was just absolutely the most fucking insane mind bending thing I'd ever experienced. I mean, Mm -hmm. We did like the Quilms Rock Festival. Like the shows were like 60,000, 80,000 people. Um, And it was all private jet. Um, We were hubbing out of London. We were at the the Mandarin Oriental. Um, And it was, and then uh, that was actually the end of my sobriety. That's a whole other story. Uh, So, um, so I did this little, I put together a 30 minute piece about the tour in South America. um, And they used that um, when you bought Libertad, you could buy the Best Buy edition. Um, and that came with a DVD that had all my videos on it, like a 30-minute documentary yeah. about South America. It's called Tierra Roja, Sangre Roja. And then it had another 15-minute thing that I did. I don't know, just like a bunch of my videos and shit. So that was uh, that was cool. And then, um, yeah, and then shortly after, I, I quit. And then, like, a few months later, the band broke up. Mm. Oh, so the video, yeah. So the last fight. So after the three-minute <laughs> documentary, after Tierra Roja, then um, we're getting ready to do. So we did the first video from Libertad was insane. It was Dean Carr. It was like one of my best friends, genius. Um, he did the video for uh, uh, She the Quick Machines, which was amazing. I love that. Looked exactly like Clint Eastwood. It was so dope. Yeah. Um, so he did that. And then for the second video, they asked me if I would want to write a treatment for it. So, um, I wrote a treatment for it and, um, I think Scott probably loved it more than the band. He always was, a, you know, I don't want to say it was a fan, but he always was very encouraging. And he would always tell me that, like, I don't think he really saw me as a record producer because up until that point, I really had not, not done anything that I was proud of. So I, I maybe played him a couple of little bullshit things. So I don't think he saw me as a producer. He saw me more as an engineer, but um, but as a filmmaker, you know. And so he always encouraged me with with filming, you know. That's cool. So um, yeah, it was really cool. So <clears throat> so so he loved the treatment that I wrote, and um, and then uh, I figured, okay, well that's about that's as high as that's gonna go, you know. That they're gonna get like they'll probably get a big name director to direct it, obviously, because it's Velvet Roller, <laughs> you know. Um, but then they asked me if I wanted to direct it. And, uh, yeah. So I was like, yeah, I'd never directed anything in my life. So I was like, sure, I'll direct wow. it. I don't really know what that means, but let's we'll, we'll figure it out. Huh. And my assistant, and my head of assistant at the time, Andy, <clears throat> he, he had gone to film school. So he basically taught me how to direct, like in my backyard. Just, I just wrote notes and then went and did it. <laughs> wow. 
That's so cool. I, I, I love it. I, your whole story is is so inspirational, and we haven't even touched on on, on, on so much because you nothing came easy. You fought for everything. You, you knew the experiences that you needed to have to get where you wanted to be. Uh, fearlessness, so much fearlessness to, to drive across, yeah. across country by yourself, to, to take these challenges head on. You know, it's to, it's not like you kind of went up through, I use a lot of his sports an- analogies, it's not like you went to single A and double A and triple A. You went from, you know, making your, your, your living in the minor leagues, I guess, if you want to call it that, to all of a sudden the major leagues with Velvet Revolver and just having everything thrown at you and, and you yeah. handling it and being successful at it. Uh, whether it's di- yeah. being a director or being Scott Weiland's assistant, I mean those are, you know, those are two very specific difficult jobs to, to have, and you, you know, you handled it, and they, that speaks a lot about you. And that's not even counting; th- those are just stresses for anybody. That's not even counting the inner turmoil or, or battles or journeys that you were going on. Because I was going to yeah. ask, because for me, I, I it's been in December; it will be four yeah. years uh, for me without a drink. Uh, there, nice. there are certain, you know, I, I did, my, my therapist forced me to, to go to AA, even though I felt I was more of a, um, you know, a pothead than anything, you know, but I was still, yeah. I would still drink alone, you know, uh, to be like George Thurgood, I would drink in the afternoon just so I could fall asleep. And she knew the dangers of that and the structure of AA, uh, and, 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 yeah. you know, being on medication. Um, you know, I'm not going to pretend to say, Hey, I'm a hundred percent. You know, there are certain things that our culture is more leaning on that have become legal here in in, in New York and yeah. other places. Uh, yeah. So basically what you're trying to say is you're on the marijuana maintenance program. Yeah, it was, it was something like that. <laughs> uh, but with alcohol was dangerous for me, and I knew that. And well, I, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't care, I guess, at the time. Um, and we can, if, if you're, if you ever, of course, you're always welcome to come back on. We can talk about... Because I've done a whole episode with a uh, former GNR manager, Alan Niven, about depression and addiction and everything. You know, we can we can yeah. hammer that home. But I guess to fast yeah. forward, how are you today? I guess uh, please let us know everything. Of course, professionally, you know, personally, because you've you've suffered a lot of loss. So how are you? Just you know, today, how are you handling yourself today, personally and professionally? Um, it's uh, you know, it's it's hit or miss. Depends on the week. You know? Sure. Um, it's easy to slip into party mode, um, in LA. Yeah. Um, and then, so I kind of vacillate between party mode and work mode. And, um, I, I've, I've always had a, a hard time finding a balance, you know, where, you know, um, I just, you know, I just get in a zone where I'm like in the studio or whatever, just writing and I just get obsessed and I don't leave. Um, you know, and no one's, no one hears from me and, um, and then, uh, and then, and then I'll be, and then I'll just completely switch gears and just be in party mode and just be partying all the time. So it's, it's hard to, I don't know, it's hard to find that balance, but you know, I'm working on it, it's, but you know, it's, uh, it's a journey. Yeah. I mean, like, so it was like 20 years. I think I was clean and sober and we were on tour. Uh, we were going to, I think we were like between Detroit and like. Um, some other city and uh, we were on the bus and um, everybody had their own bus uh, and so it was Scott and I like on the well Dave and Duff shared a bus 
because they didn't smoke. And then Slash had his own bus because he smoked. And Scott and I were on the other bus. And so uh, it was like the it was May fifteenth, nineteen ninety seven. You're good with you know, dates. <laughs> May no sorry May fifteenth two thousand seven it was my twenty year because I went into rehab May fifteenth nineteen eighty seven when I was sixteen got it in Florida yeah so it was two thousand seven um, and we were up late on the bus and it was midnight it hit midnight and I was like hey man I'm twenty years sober right now and he's like dude that's amazing that's congratulations give me a big hug whatever and I was like pour me a glass of wine oh my god oh wow and he just laughed and he's like ha ha that's very funny. I was like, no, dude. Like, seriously, I've never tasted, because I had never tasted wine. Wow, okay. And I just felt obligated. I'm a 36-year-old Italian man. I'd never tasted wine. I, <laughs> I felt like, and my, you know, when I went into rehab, it was like a family thing, right? So, like, they make your parents participate in everything. You don't just drop your kids off. Right. Um, it was called Straight Incorporated. It was part of the whole, like, Just Say No campaign, the Nancy Reagan, you know, the war on drugs, the fucking ridiculousness. <laughs> but, uh, so... My parents got clean when I got clean, basically. So my and they oh, wow. they had both gone back to they had both gone back to drinking. Like after eighteen years and twenty years, they were sober, mm. and I was coming up on twenty years, and and they were fine. They were just like you were all different people after two decades. You're just we're just you're just a different person twenty years later. So I was like, I really feel like I can handle. I can handle it. I was never a big drinker anyway. I never really liked to take a taste of alcohol. I would always rather smoke weed. So me too. But um, that's when I knew I had a problem when I'm. You know, drinking uh, liqueurs, uh, I, I basically, when I took care of my, I thought I was doing a good, well, I guess I did do a good thing. I moved in with my grandparents when my my grandfather was dying of, of cancer, and he wasn't a big yeah. drinker, but in his uh, den, there were so many bottles of, of liquor that he would get as gifts, because he was a pharmacist right. for 50 years in Brooklyn, and, yeah. I, and since I was in Brooklyn, away from all my friends on Long Island and my, you know, marijuana hookups... I drank that thing dry, and I didn't even right. like it. And, you know, my, my mom would be like, are you okay? I don't think any of them really understood until I would tell my therapist what I was doing. And she's she's like, I'm going to, you have to do something. Otherwise, I'm going to call the police on you. I'm like, okay, wow. okay, yeah. I mean, and I love my therapist, so I took everything she said to, to heart. I mean, without her, I probably uh, would be dead, you know, if anything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. no, and I get that. I see what you're saying because you're a different person. You're right. It, yeah. So I, I can I can understand that completely, and it's a whole yeah, I spent, journey. I spent two years. I spent two years. Two sorry, two decades going to AA, almost every single day. You know. Wow. Um, and uh, you know, I I changed the people, places, and things that um, people, places, and things. With. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I had to, and so. I didn't even have any friends that did drugs at that time, you know. Um, okay. And then I started. Then I moved to LA and started working with the in the, in the rock business. And obviously, everybody did drugs. So, um, so yeah. Anyway, so I finally convinced them that I wasn't joking. That I was serious. That I wanted. I'm going to actively decide to relapse. And um, and I felt like he was the one to do it. So he poured me a glass of wine and we toasted to sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, you know, you laugh. You, you have to laugh because that's just a, that's a special moment. I, you know, I, it, it's obviously. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you're you're still around. You know, there are people in my life who I've lost, and people who thankfully have survived. I'm, I'm sure we're not the only ones, uh, but I'm glad that yeah. you know you're still here. Um, 
and as, as I said before, uh, you know, I know I speak for millions of fans where it was just such a people may have perhaps seen it coming. Uh, I don't know how else right. to phrase it, but it, that doesn't make it any easier or any less of a loss. So, uh, you know, again, I'm glad you're around. You know, you've told some, you know, some very cool Scott stories, and I really uh, do appreciate it. And I can't even imagine uh, what else we can we can discuss. But, but before I go, I want to what people tell people what you're doing now, wow. and the best way for people to to reach out to you oh. or contact you, website and social media, all that fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, my Instagram is just Rocco Music. All my stuff is just Rocco Music. I don't really use Twitter, but. Um, yeah, so so uh let's see, where do I start? So two thousand fourteen I think, um Scott and Doug parted ways and Scott asked me to run studio uh, lavish and so I he wanted to like open it to the public, you know, because it was always just like his private private studio. Oh. Private sandbox things. Um and uh so I I went in and um you know, just kind of cleaned it up a little bit, freshened it up, got got some new gear, did some like um, some like strategic partnerships and endorsement deals and that kind of thing. Got some equipment that we needed and to try to compete as a commercial studio in LA. Um, I got an MCI console from New York and had that commissioned and put everything together and um, and then we were going to do a label. We we're going to do. He had Soft Drive Records, but that never really took off. So I kind of had like a new vision for for soft drive with a new business model kind of laid out and me and him and Lucas Keller, um, we're going to be partners with it. And, um, I found a band through my friend, Mark Walbaum. He brought me a band called, uh, they were called locks waves at the time. The record came out as uh turquoise noise. So I, I, that was like our first signing and that was going to be our big, our big, uh, moment out of the gate as a new label. Um, you know, a fresh new label, um, in studio, commercial studio. And then before the record, you know, I worked on that record for about probably a year, year and a half, I think, um, on and off, you know, and then before the record came out, he passed away. So, yeah, we were actually, uh, I was actually at Lavish with the band, with Turquoise Noise, and we were celebrating, uh, it was the last day of tracking before we started mixing. Um, and so we were celebrating, we're having like a little party, we'll get together at the studio. Um, when I got the call about Scott, actually it was a text from Dave Kushner. Okay. Um, I saw a tweet that Dave Navarro did. I think that's how I found out. And then, oh, you found that uh, from a tweet? Oh, that sucks. Well, I found out from a text message. Oh, I thought uh, I heard the Dave Kushner thing. I thought um, Dave Navarro tweeted first. Maybe I, 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 yeah, I yeah, misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, that's how Dave Kushner found out from Dave. Navarro's tweet name. I don't oh, know. Well, that, you don't want to find out. That Whatever way. it was, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, got it. Yeah, man, that was uh, that was fucked up. That was really fucked up, man. So uh, yeah. Well, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I'm just so sorry for the loss of your friend, and you know, it was yeah. over the course of the conversation, all the losses that you you've suffered. But you know, it's what I tell my my younger brothers, or you know, one of my best friends who thankfully survived a, a suicide attempt. You know, there are so many other people around that, that care about you. And, you know, you are far removed from the person who moved to L.A. with no friends. Uh, you, you, I'm sure you have a ton of friends. Yeah. You know, you, so come from a – it sounds like your family is awesome. Uh, great. So it's just so awesome that you're still here, that you've battled. And, and 
this is such a minor part of of your journey, but this is a big part for me. Just a, a chance to, to to talk to you and and to be inspired by your story. And this is just um yeah. you know just a drop in the bucket. So if and when you take your songwriting to uh, if you want to expand and, and maybe put out an autobiography, would you just do me a favor and call it Rocco's Modern Life? Can you do that? <laughs> it's spelled differently, so no uh, no lawsuits, right? No trademark infringement there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so 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 that's what happened. So um, I wanted to tell you the, the the way that I really got the gig. Um, so Jeremy and I were were at um, we were working at Manny's, and a call came over, and I was working like at night with VR, like doing rehearsals, like here and there. Like they were just trying to set up the PA system at Lavish or or something, and and so Jeremy and I were like watching like um, Zeppelin. I think the BBC sessions had just come out. We were watching it. We would steal the, we would steal the TV from the training room and, and wheel it down to the guitar department. And so we were just hanging out and over the, over the, uh, the, uh, what the hell do you call it? The PA or whatever at the store, the manager was like, or someone was like Rocco slash on line three. Ho, ho, ho. And so I was like, yeah, that's funny. And uh, so I went and I picked up the thing and it was actually slash. And he's like, Hey man, um, we're over here at Lavish. Um, we're trying to turn the PA on. Can you, uh, can you like walk, walk me through it? And I'm like, I was like, man, I don't know if I can walk you through it over the phone, but I can definitely come and show you how to do it. So I had my, ma- my manager was, or the, but not my manager, my manager was my friend, Will. It was the, like the department manager, the guitar department manager guy, whatever. And I was like, Hey man, um, that's actually slash on the phone and he needs me to go. They're doing a project with, with Scott and they need me to turn on the PA. And I don't know if he just didn't believe me or what. And he's like, no, man, I need you here. And it was literally just me and Jeremy, like eight hours a day, all day. There was no fucking customers. <laughs> Everybody, bought, Everybody went to Guitar Center. There was this massive mega store across the street. Nobody came to me. <laughs> um, so I was like, this is, this is so lame. So I, I was like, here, talk to him. I put the manager on the phone with Slash. And the dude was like, oh, that's what, that was the thing about it, right? Because my... So, man, so Velvet Revolver, the manager, um, I won't say her name because she doesn't deserve it. Uh, okay. He called, she gave Slash the number at Manny's to call me because I was so broke, my cell phone was turned off. And so that's why they had to page me. Oh, wow. Um, and, then, and then they were like, can you come up and set up the PA? And, uh, and I put the phone, uh, I gave the phone to the manager, and he talked to Slash, and the manager was like, no, man, I really need Rocco here today. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is fucking, I was like, fuck this. Because literally Jeremy and I would just sit around and dream about, you know, I hope it, I hope it turns into something. I hope they actually end up doing like a record or like a full album. And that would be so dope just as fans, you know? Right. Um, and then when I got the call to come and set up the PA uh, and the manager wouldn't let me, I was like, fuck this. So I did the same thing that I did like a few months before at Guitar Center. I did the same thing at Manny's. I just, just left. I told him, all right, I'm going to lunch. And I just left and I never went back. Beautiful. That was, that was the last, uh, that was the last day job I ever had. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's so, so then, cool. Then we were, then we were um, doing, when we first did Soft Guy Records, it was like a joint venture with um, with uh, Sony BMG. We had distribution through them, Sony Red. And we had to do like a promo video for the executives at Sony to say, hi, thanks for doing this project with us, this label with us and stuff. Um, and so he wanted to do a video for a song called Happy. Um, and he needed like a band, like a fake band. So just to like, you know, he didn't have a, a real band at the time, like a solo band. So... I got my friend Jeremy to go up and play in the fake band uh, for the fake video. Um, (laughs) 
And uh, I never made a full-length video out of it. I just did, like, a snippet of it. And uh, and then that's how Scott met Jeremy. And then we used to – Jeremy used to come down to San Diego with me. Me and him and Scott would ride down to uh, Coronado Island where Mary lived at the time. And I would drop Scott off with Mary and the kids, and I would go to a little – hotel and Jeremy and I would just hang out and run around Coronado all weekend um, and then we would pick him up like Sunday night and go drive back to LA so the three of us got tight and then when Scott needed a guitar player for his solo band he he asked me if because he had never even seen Jeremy play guitar it was just like the three of us hanging out and then he asked me uh, one day if Jeremy was actually a real like an actual guitar player <laughs> I was like yeah no he's like legit like he's a, he's great you know um and so when he was crewing up for the Wildabouts band, he, um, I think it started with the Happy Galoshes record. We went up to Chicago and uh, Jeremy came up and played guitar with um, Steve Albini. And uh, and we did that record. Anyway, I'm rambling a little bit. Sorry, but, uh, <laughs> it's all good. No, I, I appreciate, uh, you know, all your, your stories. And everyone has, yeah, a, has like a unique good. twist to it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I hope you can. I hope you can edit this to so I don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> you don't sound like an idiot. No, you you sound, you know, just like me or any of my listeners. Just somebody who's who's chased a dream, and, and every time something, you know, unique happens to them, they like I can't believe this happened. And you look back on your life uh, the way it used to be, and how did I get here? So you just. You could sound real, like very humble and organic. Everything coming up and just talking about your friends um, that happened yeah. to be Velvet Revolver and, and Slash and, and Scott and, and all of them. Um, I yeah, guess... that's where so that's where we're getting to bridging to where I am now. Okay, so yeah. 2014, <laughs> I I, um, I started running lavish, and then um, right as we were right as we were getting lavish up and running, my dad passed away, and then uh, in like August of 2014 um and then jeremy passed away in uh, march of 2015 and then i called my friend nick mayberry and he came and audition he got the gig and then scott passed away in uh on december 3rd 6th i can't remember i feel bad i should know that um Anyway, so then by the end of 2016, and then it was like Lemmy and Bowie and fucking, uh, it was just crazy. So and that and that Tom was uh, Tom so Petty. That was like the summer. Tom Petty, yeah. Well, yeah, it was a little, little later, later. maybe. Uh, December third, by the way, 2015. December third, yeah. So, so yeah, so summer of 2016 was um, was the darkest point in my life, the lowest point. It was fucking brutal, you know. When Scott passed, it was like uh, it was definitely the end of an era for for me. I mean, not only for rock and roll, but you know, um, and yeah, of course. And then, like, what was it? A year later, we had you know, Cornell and Chester. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you know, the first I mourned him as a friend. You know, like I just missed my friend. Like, and then I mourned him as as like an artist. You know, I guess. I I I I miss having the studio too. Like I also lost my job, you know, when he passed away. Like I also had had no income. I get it. And was out of the gig, and I also didn't have a studio or any equipment or anything to um, like make any music. Um, and then it kind of dawned on me. Oh yeah, I also lost like 
like like we, like everyone else, like we lost Scott Weiland, like as a, like a no 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 more new Scott Weiland music ever, and so that was like I was like threefold the way it hit me. It was like, you know, my career as a producer and as a songwriter, and also as my friend and also as a fan, and all that ended along with you know, um, like other people in my family. I lost a bunch of people, and so yeah, summer of sixteen was was pretty fucking brutal. I went down a really really dark path, and um, things got really scary for a while and then uh yeah and then i just i started going to therapy and uh i got on prozac they prescribed that that was uh i i wasn't i'm i i do not really like pills especially since pills had recently taken two of my friends and i just i've never been a big fan of pills and so i i, I actually had the prescription for prozac for like a month before i even filled it i didn't want to take it you know mm-hmm. but it was just getting so you know, I would just stare up at the rafters and see if they would hold my weight, you know, if, when the time came. And so uh, my wife told me that, you know, I, maybe I should, and my therapist and my family, they were all telling me maybe I should try to go on some kind of antidepressant or something. So, yeah, man. You know, Dave Kushman, you know, he was always a big supporter. So. Uh, I love Dave. Dave has been on the, uh, the show twice and, you know, grateful for him to speak about with his time with Scott and, and Chester. But I, I totally know what you're saying. When I first uh, went to therapy, I did not want to take any sort of medication. Uh, it was after three months, my therapist said, uh, you need to take something. Otherwise, I can't see you anymore. Because otherwise, I mean, I can keep taking your money, but yeah. you will not get better. So, I mean, right. it, it took a few years for me to finally accept it. Where I think that's a problem with um, the stigma, where if you are diabetic, you know you need to take insulin, and it's you feel it's more tangible. Your brain has right. certain balances where you think it's a certain behavior, and you don't equate that with a body part going wrong or feeling, you know, achy when you get the flu. So you know, I'm on. 40, uh, 40 milligrams of Cymbalta, uh, and I, I need it. I Last time I tried to wean myself off it, I would just get so angry so quickly. And I'm already an angry yeah. little Jew. I can't be any more angrier than <laughs> I, I need to be. Uh, but, yeah, I've been in those those, do- those dark places, and um, I'm a big champion of, of therapy and medication, and I'm glad, uh, you know, yeah. your wife in your corner and, and you know, being around because it's, it's so hard because yeah. – He's, you might feel like, oh, I'm the last man standing. You know, what else is there? But there's always, there's always somebody or something that, even if you don't believe it, tell yourself that there's got to be one purpose to give yourself in life to live, even if that's for yeah. somebody else. You know, even if when you the don't. one thing that kept resonating through my mind when I was at my most suicidal was my dad used to say, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of, you know, was just a stupid saying, but, uh, you it's, know, it's, it's not, not a stupid saying. Cause I'd hear it all the time, yeah. even from, well, and, and Dave, uh, I told Dave Kushner this, but that's how I lost my debt was through suicide. Uh, wow. and, and he, and that was back in 2013. And that's something that he used to say. And we guess we always knew he had, uh, emotional problems. We just never knew the depths of, of, of it. Yeah. So that's how I always felt about Scott. I include him absolutely with, uh, and I'm just talking about, I'm not talking about like songwriting or being just on the pantheon of rock heroes. I include him when I talk about uh, Robin Williams or uh, Chester Bennington. Yeah. or Because what I asked Dunk Rion 
do you consider that a slow suicide, what he was doing? And he said yes. And that's how I felt what I was doing. I I don't like saying I was not strong enough to ever make an actual attempt, but I was definitely committing slow suicide, just waiting for something to happen and, and helping it along. So it's... Uh, it, I mean, I guess, yeah. here's the thing. Here's the thing. It is it is a slow suicide, right, in all reality. <clears throat> but I don't think that's that was his intention and i don't think that's a lot of people's intention when they're when they're i think they're not trying to die i think with the drugs they're trying to live okay they're trying to be they're trying to be happy and feel better but there's a lot of pain there's and look and when you get the older you get the more times you fuck up the more guilt and shame and regrets you have and that just fuels more drug use and the drug use makes you fuck up more mm. and have more things to feel guilty about and regret it's a vicious cycle so self-forgiveness is is huge you know like um that's the battle that we all go through right it's like how how much have i hurt the people around me how irresponsible have i been why would i deserve any of this um and that's you know even though i'm i'm not a rock star i, I, I work with them and i and i and i know the battle that goes on um and and for even for me in my head um i was a rock star you know what i mean like in my in my world just it's just a kid from a small town in new york um i felt like i was on top of the world you know and, and um so i to me i just didn't understand why i didn't understand why I, why it was happening to me or why i deserved it and why other people were smarter than me and better than me and all this stuff and why was i getting these opportunities and and that um you know that just made me want to do drugs you know so um you know after after um after Scott passed, uh, yeah, like I said, everything happened and I just kind of went through a really dark place. And then, and then I got therapy and got Prozac and everything else. And then, um, I had some other health issues, um, diagnosis, right. Um, and, uh, and that was, that was really heavy to deal with. Um, and then, uh, you know, just my personal life problems and stuff. So it's, it's been a rough, it's been a rough go, but you know, I, I met, um, I got a call from, I, I was doing a session at my friend Christopher Thorne's house. He has a, he oh, used to have a bitch in studio. Sure, totally I know like, Chris, he's been on. I actually went to go see Blind Melon at uh, La Poussin Rouge, uh, was it last year or two years ago? And I actually got to hang out backstage with them a little bit. He's a great guy. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great, man. He's one of my favorite people. And so I was using his studio for some things. Um, and, I was doing a record, my friend Josh Bassett, I was producing my friend Josh's record, and um, we were, um, I think we were mixing at Dave's, or we were mixing at Krishna's studio, and then we were mixing at Christopher Thorne's studio, and, and Chris was going to a party that night, and he's like, if you guys wrap up early, come to this party, it's my friend Rami, he plays keyboards in the Foo Fighters, he's got a studio in Van Nuys, so we went, um, and I met Rami, and then we kept in touch for like a year, um, this was like 2000. 16, like October or like late 2016 that I met Rami and then we kept in touch on Facebook and then um, they were having a party in 2000 no I'm sorry this that was 17 so a year later this was like uh, October 2018 they were having a party another party I saw like a year later and I hit up Rami and, and um, uh, to just to kind of say hi and then he hit me up to run sound so I went and ran sound and uh and then I met Jeff, the studio manager, and, and Jeff really, uh, Jeff kind of saved my life in a way. You know, Jeff and Ron, <clears throat> the studio owner, and Rami, those guys, um, you know, um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I was, it wasn't looking good for me just 
It was just, it was dark. It say, was really dark. Say and, no uh, more. I, 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 I yeah. know what that means. You know, and, and whenever I, I talk about my experiences versus yours or versus a guest, I don't say it in a place of like, oh, look what I've done. I'm, I'm saying it in place of all the listeners of saying how common yeah. these problems are. So I, I'll just use me as an example of how dark it could be. You know, I just remember sitting on my Ikea couch in my um, in my apartment, just like kind of sitting back and forth, just saying the word suicide over and over again, you know, and yeah. just trying to like program my brain. I'm like, this is, I'm, I'm committing to being this sad, you know, and it's it's amazing how that just was only maybe a couple years ago and, you know, in, in a month I'm probably moving to Queens, well, I am moving to Queens with my, my girlfriend, my most successful uh, relationship that I've ever had, which would not have happened if I didn't get uh, sober from from alcohol and go to AA and go to therapy and all these things. So um, yeah, I, I I can only imagine. And you know, again, I I'm, I'm glad for someone who who's just met you. This is our our second phone conversation. You know, I'm I'm really glad that you're still around uh, to you know not just for your friends and family and to continue to you know create new projects. Uh, but to keep the memory of of Scott alive, you know, by by telling stories, and so I, I'm wondering if it's a quick uh, yeah. story we can end end here. I, I shared a picture which I didn't realize that it was yours until you commented on it. It's huh. I, I guess it's in a plane or or a bus. Uh, you see Dave Kushner looking at his laptop with his hands on each side of his face, like he's kind of frustrated or trying to pay attention, and on one side of him. Is is Duff laying down on a cot or a side bed like he's a vampire with his hands crossed over his heart? And then on the other side is Scott Weiland with the biggest uh, grin on his face with Slash's top hat. And, and no, no Slash there, no Matt Sorum, but you took the picture. Was that just a yeah. random funny moment, or is there a, a story behind that? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, that like Scott got a lot of flack for, for like, being like you know i don't know man he was so funny like it bums me out man that nobody ever really got to see uh his funny side you know he was so funny we would laugh you know it was just we had a lot of good times and i've got like 100 hours of like video footage of just us on the road that no one's ever seen um i want to do something with it at some point but okay um so, uh, but, but, uh, yeah, no, we were, that was, a, that was, a, we were on the, on the, on the private jet, I think, um, we were heading to Finland and, uh, <clears throat> Duff was like, it was kind of a running joke. Cause every time I was filming, Duff would be sleeping. Like he wasn't really sleeping. He was like laying down, stretching his back, meditating or whatever. I don't know. But, um, and Dave was probably just being funny cause he's hilarious. Um, and, uh, it was just one of those moments where Scott was in a good mood. Look, I mean, we're all my friends are musicians, and we're all fucking manic depressive. So when it's <laughs> manic, it's just a lot of fun, and we were having a lot of fun. And he was, Flash was passed, Flash and, Flash and Matt were passed out in the front of the plane, and <laughs> okay. and um, and um, we grabbed his hat and I put it on Scott's head, and he, you know, was just like dancing around with it. I don't know what he was doing, but I took a picture. It was just a funny moment. Yeah. It's a great moment. It reminded me of, I don't know if you remember the movie An American Tale, Fievel, when he put on his uh, little mouse, Fievel Mouskowitz. I don't know. Maybe there'll people out there uh, will get my reference. But when you put on his I dad's... Well, it came out in the early 80s, so I thought that might be a, a chance. But whatever. It reminded yeah, me yeah. of a scene, and if any of my listeners get the reference, they will laugh. Anyway... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rocco, yeah. thank you so much for your time. I know we kind of went... 
over time, but I I feel like we hit a groove conversationally, and not just uh, to learn about your your history and your journey, uh, and of course some great Velvet Revolver stories, but just you know what you've been through and, and the, how the battle never ends. This is life, and you have so many wonderful moments in your life, so many difficult moments, but that's what makes a person. And you're still going, and you're you're continuing, and I can't wait to, wait to see what you you do next. And uh, as I mentioned oh, earlier, yeah, I should probably tell you about that. What I'm doing, so it's, yeah, please. Um, you asked me about <laughs> what's up. Yeah, so I so when I start, so I I started at Phono. Yeah, they they um, they let's see what happened. Yeah, so Jeff um, invited me to come back and hang out, and we would hang out, and then um, and then uh, I met Ron and. And they uh, they needed like a few things in there, so I started working. So now I'm at Phonogenic Studios with Van Nuys, which is Rami's studio. And uh, the two things in there, I've been there since like January, I guess. Cool. December, January, and uh, yeah, so I'm doing. I'm I'm really focusing now on um, getting back to songwriting because that you know it's kind of gone full circle, and I and I just feel. Um, I just feel like I owe it to Scott and Jeremy, you know. And, and my pop, you know, to like, um, I mean, look, Jer- Jeremy and I would sit around and talk about like, we would dream about one day having, you know, like a record out, like on a label. And um, when, when we did Blaster, well, when they did Blaster, I wasn't really around for it too much, but when they did Blaster, um, you know, Jeremy wrote a lot of that stuff, he wrote, you know, obviously all the guitar stuff and wrote, you know, there's a song on there called Circles that I still can't listen to. But, uh, mm-hmm he was so excited about it, you know, and he was living with me for like a year and a half when they were making blaster. He lived with me and my wife. Um, and he would play me demos and stuff. And he was so excited that he was finally going to have, you know, look, cause at first, like every sideman musician in LA is trying to get in on songwriting with the artist, you know, I mean, or not trying to, but would like to ideally if they're a songwriter, um, you know, cause that's where the money is. So, um, when Jeremy was was uh, was writing songs with Scott with with the Wild Abouts and, and all that stuff, it was you know he was on top of the world, and um, I was super excited for him. And then you know the day before Laster was released, um, Jeremy passed away, and so he never got to see it come out. And it just and I feel like uh, you know we were we were doing we were starting to do songwriting sessions, him and I and. Um, and uh, so I just feel like I kind of owe it to him and Scott. You know, I just owe it to people that encourage me that aren't here anymore. I, I still kind of feel them, uh, like, in my in my um, world, I guess. You know, I just feel them like they kind of um, – they they kind of – they still have my back, you know. Um, and I feel like I, if I'm not – if I'm not, like, um, pursuing my, my music, then um, – I'm just doing them a disservice and I'm, I'm letting them down, even though they're not, you know, they're here. I just not in the physical realm, but anyway, so, um, I get it. So that's, that's what I'm doing at, at, at phonogenic. I'm doing a lot of songwriting sessions. And, um, the one thing that I've always been super passionate about is, um, helping younger artists, musicians and mentoring them, whether it be songwriting or, you know, some kids are into production. I'll teach them production. Some are into video, um, some of my friends are just into 
you know, being in rock bands and, and um, you know, whether it's copyright forms, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm just always, uh, I, I like to try to help because, you know, I had, I had help when I, when I was coming up, you know, if it wasn't for Doug and Scott and folks like that, um, I wouldn't have had a career. And so um, I feel like when you get to uh, a certain point in your career, it's time to send the elevator back down for the next guy. And so that's kind of where, where I'm at right now. I'm doing like a little, we were talking about doing a, a record label with, um, phonogenic you know with Rami and Jeff and Ron and so I'm I'm currently looking for um talented artists and bands um and I've got a guy named Colin Martin that I'm working with and there's a there's a band called the Trash Dogs that I'm working with and then my friend Gabe Masco we did a song called Contrition um and my friend Bassett uh, his record's coming out that we did um my friend Joe Perez is a great guitar player um yeah, so that's that's kind of what I'm doing, man. I'm I'm just really focusing on writing and co-writing and um, learning Ableton and going beyond the rock genre and getting more into uh, programming and and uh, you know just expanding my horizons as a as a producer and as a writer. Um, and I can kind of start to see the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit right with on. my mental health. Cool. You know, awesome. So, yeah, that, that that's amazing, Rocco. I, it's your whole story again is is inspirational, and I that's I know just a, a the tip of the iceberg with uh, of who you are, what you were able to share with uh, with us today, and I appreciate you being so so candid and open. And when you you know you make that record, your next project, you know, please uh, keep us informed. Let us know so we can follow and, and track because you know they Scott saw something in you, and like you said, he he supported you. And I, 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 I'm the same way with people who supported me, like my dad or my grandfather. Even though they're not here, you live for them, and that's yeah. uh, that's the uh, the circle of life, I guess. That ended on yeah. a, a corny, uh, corny note. But um, but thank you, Rocco, again, so, so much for your time, and you know, just keep us posted with with everything that you have going on. Yeah, man, for sure, definitely. Um, well, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. What a great conversation. That was cool. That was a fun interview uh, to take part in. And I really hope you enjoyed episode 137 of Appetite for Distortion. Remember, if you have any comments about a guest that we have, please, whether it be on the iHeartRadio app or Spreaker or SoundCloud, there's usually a place where you can leave comments. And, of course, you can do the same thing on, on Facebook and Twitter. Tell me about the episodes. Maybe there's certain questions that you want to ask the guest, and uh, I can relay to them after and answer it either you know on social media or on the next episode. Uh, I want this. I don't want an interview to be just over, and then we're done with it and, and move on. I want it to live on, and it's great when I have former guests. I, I saw uh, Mark Dan Zeisen, uh, or uh, Greg Buckwalter. Uh, share their interviews that I did with them, you know, a year ago. So it makes me feel really good when a guest takes pride in the interview that they did with me. Um, so if there's anything that you know, Rocco didn't answer or a question about, uh, or, or just words of encouragement, words of uh, just appreciation, I guess, to for the journey that he's lived on. And it's a very common story. I related whatever my commonality, my parallel to his story was in, in, in struggling in the highs and lows of life. Not many people have the highs that he had, and I mean that about touring the world 
with the biggest rock band in the world. Uh, but it's a very common problem. Depression, stress. Uh, we talk about it all the time, especially when it comes to Scott Weiland. And he is still missed so much. And I say that as just a fan, not as close as, as Rocco and he was, certainly not his family. So, you know, if you are struggling, because I think we now we're aware of when friends are struggling, you want to be aware of yourself. <clears throat> first and foremost, because that's something that I would always take care of somebody else first, but it's important to take care of yourself. So uh, it's just, it's sad. It is sad. Uh, we're going to have the sad stories. How Scott, uh, you can look at it as a sad story, but I think it was important to take stock in what Rocco said about uh, Scott's sense of humor and how good of a guy he is or was when he was not using. And that's who the, the real Scott was. And that's really important. Uh, never to forget that, the amazing songwriter he was, the amazing frontman that he was. And I only say that from my perspective. Somebody who, you know, I was fortunate to see Velvet Revolver twice in person, but that was it. You know, that's just as a fan. Never got to interview him, never got to meet him. Um, but his, his, Scott's story affects me. Rocco's story affects me. And I have no doubt it's the same thing uh, to you. So that, again, does it for episode 137. Uh, what is the come? Well, I don't usually announce guests on the podcast anymore because you just you never know. I've literally have had interviews that get canceled the night before after um, they were confirmed. Again, nothing is confirmed, but Axel's love of Taco Bell. But this was just confirmed and hopefully will be happening uh, in just a couple days. But Jim Brewer returning to the show. And we're going to have him, I believe, for an entire hour. Comedian Jim Brewer. You know we're going to talk a lot about ACDC and Axel DC. So that's going to be fun for the next episode. So when will you hear that? Well, in the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy... I don't know if soon is the word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. So whenever we would be in an elevator, uh, like on tour at these like super fancy hotels, Scott and I would like we'd get in someone would come on the elevator and we would look at each other and like it's all I could do to not start laughing. And then one of us would go, it was just like a fart noise. (laughs) Um, So you got to put that in there somewhere. Just like, like here, here's the noise here. I'll give you a sample. That's it. Just put that in there somewhere. I'll figure figure it out. Talk about it. Just put it in there as an Easter egg for me. (laughs) No, you a hundred percent. You got it, Rocco. (laughs) 